Hello and welcome to Ponda Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Ogilvie, Developmental Pediatrician and member of Ponda, Physicians of Ontario Neurodevelopmental Advocacy, a network of physicians and psychologists in Ontario whose goal is to advocate for children and youth with special needs. This is the first of what we hope will be many podcasts focused on issues of advocacy that impact the lives of individuals with neurodevelopmental conditions and the children and youth that you see on a daily basis in your practice. We hope that through these podcasts, we will inform, educate, and inspire. If you're interested in learning more about Ponda, please feel free to visit us on ponda.ca, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. I'm talking today with Nikki Jones Stockreef, Developmental Pediatrician at Children's Treatment Network in Simcoe County and current chair of Ponda. She's also the author of the Advocacy Toolkit for Language-Based Learning Disabilities, which has been available online since 2016. Joining us is Todd Cunningham, a school and clinical psychologist at OISE and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Welcome, you guys. Thank you for having us. Awesome. Nice to see you. Likewise. So, Nikki, can you set the stage for us? You're a developmental pediatrician, and I'm sure you see children with learning disabilities and obviously kind of led to your passion to develop this toolkit. Um, what would be the common situation or child you would see uh, presenting with a learning disability? Absolutely. So it's, it's a pretty common situation, not just for developmental pediatricians, but I think for general pediatricians working in the community um, to see children who have problems in school, struggling with their behavior, perhaps having anxiety symptoms, school refusal. And in many of these situations, at the root of the of the problem is a significant learning disability. And uh, it, it, there are lots of cues early in the child's development, perhaps with their language, um, their rhyming, their letter identification, and then uh, learning to decode that are clues that uh, there is a significant learning problem. And I think we need to be able to identify those and uh, advocate for these children to get appropriate intervention in school. So that's interesting. You said that they might not be coming necessarily with a school issue per se, but it could be something as broad as a behavior difficulty or challenge. Absolutely. I, th I think, you know, most people would talk to their teacher or um, school administrators if they thought it was purely a learning problem. Um, However, the learning difficulties often get confounded by behavioral and mental health problems, and that's often when they present to the uh, pediatrician's office. Fair enough, fair enough. And how common are learning disabilities? They're actually really common. So anywhere from 5 to 10% of all children have a significant learning challenge and can be diagnosed with a learning disability. Wow. Most of these kids, 85%, in fact, it's a literacy-based learning disability at the root of their, their problem. Wow. So it is really common. Up to 10%. That's one in 10 we're talking about. Absolutely. Wow. Um, and if, if we pull it back and then look more at the big picture of literacy and learning, I mean, I think as Canadians, we're you know, proud of the society that we, we are privileged to live within. And um, we hear certainly more and more about the relevance of social determinants of health. And I think literacy is a big factor on that list too. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the societal impact if, if reading disabilities aren't um, addressed? 
For sure. So literacy is one of the most important social determinants of health. We know that individuals who don't learn how to read fluently are going to have lower employment, lower high school graduation, more mental health problems, and uh, uh, more sense, uh, more difficulties with their sense of well-being and health. So it, it's really important for success in life. And what's really interesting at this point is we're really understanding how that is, because just not learning how to read um, doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, gives you mental health issues, um, but it is the stressors that come with the fact that you aren't able to read that starts to wear you down and, and make you predisposed. So when, when you think about it, if you have this uh, a student who in kindergarten, grade one, who is struggling with this fundamental task that all students are doing on a day-to-day -day basis and they aren't able to do that task, then really on at the beginning of their education career, they're starting to see that I can't do stuff that others are able to do. And so this concept of what we call academic self-concept, the way that I view myself as a student starts to erode. So I go through grade one, grade two, I'm trying to learn how to read, but I can't do it. Um, now in grade four, all students are able to read, but I still can't do it. I'm being made fun of in class. I'm scared that my teacher's going to call on me to read. read. So suddenly the classroom becomes an unsafe place. My stress levels are going up and my academic self-concept continues to go down. And what we know is when students really get that low academic self-concept, when they believe that they're poor students, often because they can't do the fundamental tasks of being able to read, spell, or do some math, that when it comes to high school, when they have to make those decisions of where they're going from grade eight to grade nine, what, what courses are they're going to take, they're not going to take it at the kind of the college university track. They're going to take it more at the general or workplace track. So suddenly we already have a changing of trajectory within a person's life of where they're going. As they're going through high school, then that frustration continues to build. And what we see at, around grade 10 is this critical point where this frustration I have because I can't do this thing that my teachers ask me to do every single day and my very low academic self-concept, I'm just really poor as a student, leads to a point that they begin to decide to exit high school altogether. In Ontario, we also have a wonderful thing called the grade 10 illiteracy test that it's adds to that um, sense of uh, frustration and that barrier that they're running into at this point. And so we see a lot of students who have these learning challenges starting to exit out um, of school at that time. What we know then is as they exit out of the school, then often they don't keep employment because really the literacy part is a piece, but now we only almost have a second disability that has developed. And this disability is this academic self-concept, this view of themselves. And so whenever the challenge gets tough, whenever they're having to do something, getting employment, keeping employment, when something gets challenging, they're often then backing out of that. And so therefore, the, they're unable to maintain employment or they get, are underemployed. And, um, and, and the stresses of those things then really continue to add up to the point where in 2008, we really saw that adults with learning disabilities were two to three times um, more likely to only report uh, or to report um, poor to fair general and mental health. So it's, it is a huge issue. Having literacy issues is not a school-related issue. It is almost uh, an issue that says the quality of life that you have is going to be significantly impacted. 
Wow. So if we really think of those upstream factors that we hear about in affecting change and um, social inequity, it's, it is really moving to early recognition for some of these factors. And, and that interesting concept you said, the academic self-concept um, of, of looking at how children are perceiving themselves in the classroom and, and through their school career. That's fascinating. Yeah. Ah. Um, why would a child come to see, we touched on this a little bit, Nikki, already, but I wonder if we could talk a bit more, why would they be coming to see their physician um, for a learning disability? You mentioned, you know, some things are really obvious, they might be talking to the teacher, but I wonder if some people feel, you know, um, what is within our scope of practice to be able to address some of those concerns and how do we see them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, of course, there are some medical issues that can impact how a child is learning. They could have a hearing problem. Uh, they could have a medical illness. Um, they could have problems sleeping at night, uh, poor nutrition. There could be stressors in the psychosocial environment, all of which we're trained to address and try to remediate. Um, in addition, there are many comorbidities that can go along with learning disabilities. So it's important to look at other issues that may be going along. So uh, there could be an anxiety disorder. There could be attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, there could be a developmental coordination disorder. All these sorts of things. I mean, we are very diagnosis driven, I think, as physicians. Um, but we can look at those sorts of conditions and diagnose them or rule them out. Um, I, I think really kids arrive in our office because families really want their child to be successful and uh, th they don't know what to do next. Sometimes teachers are telling them to bring their child to the doctor um, to make sure there isn't anything medical going on. Um, and it's really, a partnership, I feel, between education and medicine and psychology at times to identify what's going on with this child and get them the, the support that they really need. What are some risk factors that you're going through and thinking about when you're doing that kind of wraparound or holistic assessment, looking at uh, their medical, their psychosocial um, kind of life? For sure. So I would say one of the biggest risk factors is language delay. So children who are struggling learning to talk in the first place, uh, especially if they have difficulty with language comprehension. Uh, family history of a learning disability is very, very common and, and that's sort of a cue that, that might be occurring in the child. Um, and, and then there are life experiences that may be delaying a child's acquisition of language and reading skills. Um, you know, adversity that, that life brings, um, where children aren't hearing enough language, um, there may be issues in the family that are interfering with their um, ability to, to learn. Um, so addressing those things, I think, are, are really key. That's great. And I think um, as developmental pediatricians, we, we look at that, those studies that look at the language gap between children of different um, socioeconomic status and the gap in language um, use and what they hear between even school entry, from birth to school entry. And it is, can, is quite impressive what that gap can be. For sure. Early exposure to language even. Um, Todd, how are children within the system uh, currently being identified or, or screened for learning uh, disabilities? 
Well, I think when we talk about the system, when we talk about the Ontario as a whole, I think it's very, it's varied depending on where you are, with some school boards doing very systematic early screening for children, um, whereas other school boards are um, waiting for teachers to notice that kids or students are having difficulties um, trying something out in the classroom and then bringing them to a team meeting to better understand what are the challenges that are, are going on. And I think one of the challenges is um, when we don't have um, kind of mandatory early screening using tools that we know are um, reliable and valid, is that um, a lot that, that the students that get caught by kind of teachers' perceptions might be the students who are more acting up. They're the ones who are kind of probably more stressed. Um, because being more disruptive within the classroom. And so they get flagged as the children who need support. But, you know, another student who is more internalizing their frustration or their stresses um, might go completely unnoticed for a longer period of time. When a student is recognized then, um, and they go to a, a school support team meeting, then the idea is that a group of um, educators and, and admin within the school will come and look at that student and try and come up with some solutions that might help them, or if they don't have any solutions, might refer them on to get um, more uh, testing. The problem with this approach, though, is it continues to delay the um, screening and implementation of an intervention um, program. So more time that we say that, oh, we need more testing or we need to just wait a little bit longer or we're going to have to put them on a wait list for a full psycho, a psychological assessment in the school system to really identify if they have a learning disability or not, that just keeps moving us further and further and further away from that, um, from those interventions. And as I mentioned earlier, that stress level in that student, that frustration that student continues to, to develop. And um, it would be great if we did have that kind of universal screening um, early on. And are there uh, efforts to move towards some harmony across the system for early screening in that way? Or is that just something that is too difficult with each um, you know, board and education system working independently? It's, it's challenging because school boards um, make their own, um, they get guidance from the ministry, but in the end they are choosing the tools um, that they're using, the, where their resources are going. Principals at each school have, um, have an impact on the, those decisions. And so right now there is not a unified direction or approach to be that, that that's going across. There's definitely, um, um, guidance saying that this is definitely where we need to go, but we haven't seen that real uh, unified working among all boards to, to, to move to this, this place of really good early um, screening for identification purposes. And given your background and your knowledge, is that, do you think, where things need to go? Or are there other um, issues that uh, would limit or need to point us in a different direction? No, I, I think one of the key things, if we truly want to change the course of these students' lives, if we truly want to start to have a major impact on students, students with learning disabilities, is we have to go early. We have to screen in kindergarten, grade one, to be able to identify. We have to bring in the evidence-based um, interventions that we know. Um, 
work. And one of the exciting things about being in education at this time is both we know how to screen and, and for, for these individuals and, and our screeners are not huge long things. We can do this within like five to 10 minutes. And the second thing is we know what to do once we identify a student who has, um, uh, who has weaknesses um, in reading, we know how to be able to support them at an early age. And if we do that early on, you know, the hope is that we can actually remediate the underlying issues. We actually can correct the reading disability so that they'll be able to go on. And I guess that's as a psychologist, you know, working with uh, pediatricians, that's one of my hope is that as uh, you, uh, we continue to work as a united front to be able to identify these students earlier and earlier so that we can get them into those right types of interventions and so that we can have that meaningful impact on their lives. So following on that line of thought, then, and this could be for both of you as well, um, are there ways that pediatricians, general pediatricians, can be screening uh, children in their clinic? Well, um, you know, there, there are these wonderful um, measures called curriculum baseline measures, and what they do is they look at literacy um, as a developmental um, process, that there's certain skills one has to master when you are uh, four or five years old and different ones that you have to master when you're six and seven and eight and nine and onward. And so what you're able to do is use these brief um, assessment tools that take between one and five minutes to administer. And what they do is basically say, A, has a student um, mastered this skill to a level that we would expect for that age. And if you haven't mastered, then that's a warning sign that the student is at risk of developing literacy difficulties later on. Um, so, so by doing these quick screeners right in, in uh, a doctor's office, I could see them being able to empower parents to say, no, in fact, your child has not developed these essential skills that are going to be required that are required for them to be able to read or your grade three student has not developed sufficient basic reading skills to continue to develop their reading and to develop reading comprehension um, in the future. We, we need to um, uh, talk to the school about how, how are we going to work together to be able to address this. So tangible ways to assess, and in essence, literacy milestones, if we think yeah. in developmental frame, right? And, and where would they access these, um, these tools? Two great websites. Um, if you're Googling stuff is interventioncentral.com um, and go to the CBMs, the Curriculum Baseline Measures. Or if you Google Dibbles Next um, and uh, go to their free, um, their free stuff. Dibbles Next is, is probably one of the best researched um, curriculum by, um, baseline measures out there um, for reading and, and spelling and math now. And then if you're willing to spend kind of like 60 bucks, then a wonderful book is um, the ABCs of CBM. So if you go to Amazon, you can order today. The ABCs of CBM um, for like $60. And it again lays out, it has how to here are the tests, here's how to administer the test, and here are the norm references for those tests to see is the student meeting those developmental milestones or not. Great, and just for the record, we did not receive any financial uh, incentive from any of these organizations, but it's just really nice to share resources, I think, because uh, these are things people are looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, I could say that if uh, people go to the toolkit uh, at ponda.ca, it does list 
um, a number of resources, including Dibbles. Um, and I'll make sure those other resources are on the next edition. Perfect. And uh, for our listeners as well, stay tuned because the second part of this podcast series goes into more detail about that toolkit and some of these uh, more concrete measures. Um, so we talk, we're talking about early, early identification. Uh, I think we're, a lot of us are on board with that. Um, but identifying difficulties early on for a child, is, is that the same as, do those children develop learning, uh, go on to have the category of learning disability, or um, are there different trajectories that these kids will follow? Yeah, well, learning to read is uh, that that skill is on a continuum. And so at a certain point, we say there is a cutoff where you have now met the threshold of having a learning disability in the area of reading or dyslexia. It's another way of saying it. Um, But what we know is that even if you don't meet that strict cutoff, there's a lot of students who still have challenges in reading and need more intensive intervention for that skill to um, be able to to develop. Um, So we move into the diagnostics only when um, we actually see those kind of those criteria um, being met. So all students who are flagged as being at risk do not move into a diagnosis of a learning disability. However, if nothing's done, they're at high risk of, of developing that or meeting those criteria in the future. So we can really try to shape the trajectory for some of these kids who are struggling early on, I think is the message I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And then for the students who are later on in life, it's not, uh, it's not, we haven't given up on them. Um, there are other things we can do for like the high school student who is feeling very stressed by the fact that their literacy rates are very low. There's other accommodations such as technology, computers that can read aloud to you, or being able to get um, audiobooks or having a peer read. There are other ways to access that core information to allow them to be able to continue to learn. The literacy um, difficulty, the, the my inability to read or decode individual words should not prevent me from being able to access education in this day and age. We do have other tools to help students who have not mastered that foundational skill. Good point. So it's never too late to try to take a closer look if if a student is struggling. Yeah. Um, So sometimes, especially in the young population, it can be difficult to sort out more of a mild cognitive disability from a language-based learning disability. Um, Does that matter? Does in that early, if we're talking about providing them those extra supports, will those children benefit in um, similar ways or or, um, that we should be advocating for? Actually, it doesn't matter. So even children with low cognitive abilities uh, will respond to the interventions. Um, Also English language learners. So even if English is not their first language, they will also respond to uh, these interventions. So it's not important necessarily to refine what's going on developmentally with the child um, at an early stage. Great. So not getting so hung up on, as Todd, you were saying earlier, you know, waiting for more tests to get it absolutely delineated perfectly, that there's some things we can move forward with. Totally. If you don't have the skill, teach the skill. Brilliant. Um, What age, uh, this is a question I get from colleagues as well, how young can a learning disability be diagnosed? Um, So at this point, part of so the Ontario Psychological Association 
um, put out some new guidelines around the assessment and diagnosis of students with learning disabilities um, last year in June 2018. It was made up of 16 psychologists who represented all the different aspects of the field from school boards to private practice to hospitals to universities to workplace. And what the consensus was there is that to have a learning disability, part of that criteria is you have to have a history of the impairment being present. Um, so if I'm in kindergarten, I can't have a learning disability because I haven't actually had enough schooling yet to say I have not learned, been able to learn the skill yet. So really it's around kind of somewhere in grade one um, is, is the point where you can start to say, yeah, based on the schooling that has taken place, that um, the student has not has not responded to to the instruction and therefore meets those those criteria. Before grade one, it's really we're identifying students at risk. Again, we know that skills aren't developing, so we have to do something about it. But to meet those formal criteria, now we need to have a sufficient amount of schooling that has taken place to be able to warrant that that, that diagnosis. And I think that's something I even see my own practice is helping families understand what that means and, and why they're being told assessments might not happen till later on. So part of it uh, is obviously some resource allocation issues, but also um, just the differences that we can do some things ahead of time uh, that we're not always waiting for that designation and helping families understand that needing some exposure to curriculum and to the opportunities to learn and have focused or direct instruction um, is where we need to put our priority. Yeah, but again, I don't want the audience to get confused. We don't need to wait to grade three, grade four, to grade five to actually diagnose. We can diagnose in grade one and we can scream before that. So we can identify very accurately in the kindergarten that this student has significant difficulties and we need to do something now. We don't have to wait for those formal assessments later on to get that, those, that, those diagnoses. We can yeah, act earlier. Absolutely. Nikki, any other comments or observations on that line? Um, I, I think there are some great interventions in Ontario and um, they're being used in a systematic way, in a, a tiered approach so that uh, all children get a certain level of structured uh, teaching and reading. Uh, then some children are getting a bit more support and then children who really need that intensive direct instruction with a program like Empower, um, ideally, um, it's, it's being used really effectively in some school boards. But there are other school boards who haven't embraced that uh, evidence-based intervention that are using outdated programs like um, reading recovery, or sometimes they don't have any real approach to kids who are struggling with reading. And I just feel there's such an inequity between what a child in one school board living in one area of the province can access that's going to change their life versus a child somewhere else that doesn't have access to it and they're going to struggle for, for their lives. Um, so I really feel this is, it's a human rights issue, it's an equity issue. Pediatricians are seeing these kids anyway. They're coming in our door whether we want to see them or not. And I think we, we have a duty to address this problem and, and our voices 
carry some weight. We're professionals. I think we uh, need to speak out and say what the research shows to be true, that kids with learning disabilities uh, affecting their reading, we can screen for them early. There's evidence-based intervention. There's made into Ontario solutions and kids, we can change kids' lives. And, and we need that to be equitable across the province. Sounds like a really great goal. And hopefully through some of these conversations, we can inspire other pediatricians, other psychologists, and even empower some families to be talking to their local schools about this issue, because I think more voices, even from the ground up, can help make some change, hopefully uh, in the long run. Absolutely. Uh, and I know there are examples of parents who have taken this information, advocated at their local school, and gotten uh, a good direct instruction program in their school. Uh, so individuals can make a difference, um, whether it's parents, physicians, psychologists, we all need to work together, uh, and educators too, because I know educators want the best for their students. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I think Ontario has one of the best education systems in the world um, in, in reading uh, in 15 year olds and, and the OECD, um, uh, last OECD PISA study, Ontario came fifth in the world and Canada was second. Wow. So we, we do well, but I'm talking about that 10%, right? The 10% of kids who don't do well we can make a difference for them. There's areas to do better. Yes, absolutely. Great. So yeah, it's a culture of collaboration working between medicine, pediatrics, psychology, education, all towards a common goal. Um, we'll be talking next uh, in the podcast that follows this series around some of those evidence-based interventions that we just started to touch on here, the Empower Reading Program. Uh, we'll also introduce you to the LD Learning Disability Toolkit that is posted on the Ponda website. So if you want to take a sneak peek at that, feel free to visit us at www.ponda.ca. Again, we're active on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and we're always interested to hear from you around other ideas you might be uh, interested in hearing about on podcasts. So connect with us over our website, and we'd be happy to try to organize those. Thanks both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jackie.